No? How about now? Hello, everybody. Glad to be back home. Thankful um, to be with you again this morning. It's been a great couple of weeks. Many of you know we were out uh, visiting family. I got to fish for the first time in a really long time. Uh, Anecdotally, I bought a pair of waders before I came to LifePoint nine years ago, and I have never gotten to use them until this past week fishing. I've always used them in the baptistry. Uh, And so as I was putting them on before I went fishing, uh, I looked at my wife and I said, so you have repented of your sins and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, it's just what I do when I put these waders on. And then I came home and I was trying to take off the waders and I'm like, man, where is Ted Butts when you need him? So Ted, you're going fishing with me every time from here on out because I can't get those stupid things off without you. Um... But even all of the joy that we had in being able to do those things with our families, beloved, we so missed being here. Um, And so much of being away was teaching us how much this is home to us and how much we love each one of you. I think one of the things that we should all be thankful for is what we have, the tremendous blessings that we have in Christ. Our blessings are altogether incalculable in Christ. Our our minds can't hold all that Christ is and all that he has done on our uh, behalf. And that we might know and experience the blessings of Christ in our lives individually really is the emphasis, the thrust of this 16th verse that we're going to be in uh, today in chapter 4. Here John takes all that he's been saying about the assurance of our faith in Christ and the blessing of knowing Christ and he leans into all of that and he carries it forward that we would know and experience confidently our blessings in Christ. He is reminding us of what he has already laid before us in verse 15. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That is the proclamation of all of the apostles. It's what the, in that one verse, is encapsulated the gospel that Jesus has come to be the Savior. And then in verse 15, he gives us that test of whoever agrees with the apostolic record, whoever looks at the Bible and says yes and amen to what is taught concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It is those who are in fact in God and God in fact indwells them. There is this test in verse 15 of whether or not outwardly someone is in Christ. In verse 16, he uses this word we again, but this time it is aimed at everyone throughout all of church history who would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, all of us, you and I, 2,000 years from the writing of this letter, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Again, verse 14 is what has been taught. Verse 15 is kind of aimed at those who agree with what has been taught. And so we can confirm that they are in Christ. And verse 16 is all of us who would believe on the same. 
and that we would know the love of God, that we would experience, not just that we would objectively know something, but that we would subjectively apply the teaching of the apostles to our lives. That is what John aims at today. So with that in mind, if you would do honor to the reading of God's word, and as we begin to read again what John has written to the saints. Starting in verse 7 again, John is writing here under the inspiration of the one who holds all of the stars in their place, who gives us life and breath and mercy. By his spirit alone, John has written, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And we have seen, nope, excuse me, I skipped verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love of, that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is God's word to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you acknowledging uh, to our shame that even in Christ we forget the love in which we stand, uh, that we take far too lightly the love that you, have shed, uh, that you have poured out on our behalf. Uh, we minimize by not thinking enough, by not meditating enough, uh, by not showing gratitude enough for the glories of Christ. Uh, and Father, the, the wonderful thing is that we know that you have not left us, but that you are still carrying out the Trinitarian work of redemption, that we who you have set your love upon, that you loved us from the foundation of the world, and Father, that you've sent your Son to be the wrath-bearing sacrifice for us, and that by the work of the Spirit, all that Christ has done is being applied to our hearts. And so may it be so today that these eternal truths are written on all of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. John is really dealing with here in verse 16 is the relationship between faith and experience. There really are two components of what this faith experience uh, dialogue really encapsulate. And the first is the objective and the subjective components of this faith and experience reality. The Christian faith has two components. It, it has at the same time both an objective and a subjective reality. It is a faith that is, a, that is grounded in facts that are outside of us. It is a faith that is rooted in doctrinal theological realities, in, in things that Christ has actually accomplished, in historical fact, objective truth, truth that will in fact 
set us free. But it is also a faith that is a subjective inward reality. It is alive. It is active. And the Spirit is constantly applying the outward objective reality of the gospel inwardly to the saints by faith. There is both and as a reality to the Christian faith. You have to have both the objective reality of the truth once for all delivered to the saints and the subjective reality of the Spirit applying those truths into our lives. But there's a problem. That problem is that we're all fallen. And that because of our fallen nature, there is this grave danger to the church that we will err in going in one of the two directions, of falling into one of those ditches uh, and only living in the objective or only living in the subjective reality of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We, we tend in one direction or the other because we are weak and finite creatures. There are those in the church who tend to be more intellectual and cerebral. They love to think about the objective truths of the faith. They love theology. They see truth as beautiful. It's worth defending. It's worth writing papers about and talking about and mulling over and arguing over that they love the objective reality of the gospel. But if they are not careful, their faith will shrivel up and prove itself not to be Alive, It will end up being revealed as something that is merely intellectual and not living in accordance with the Spirit of God. These kind of people are the kind of people that when you begin to talk about difficult verses in chapter 4 of John, gives us a lot of theological controversy and a lot of things, all of John's writings. John doesn't write in a linear syllabus type fashion. He kind of just, again, spirals in every direction. And so there's a lot of room for debate and disagreement in this letter. And the intellectuals, the ones that fall into the ditch of only being intellectuals, will reveal themselves as being in that ditch because when it comes to loving people, you'll find them arguing with other Christians about the love of God in a way that's not loving at all. And so what you'll find is the objective truth that the Bible lays before us that we should love one another is not something that they actually practice out in subjective reality because it's only something that is in their mind, not something that has been written on their heart. And that's a lamentable reality. The other ditch is filled with pragmatists. People who are not concerned with the objective elements of the Christian faith. They're not concerned with the doctrines once for all delivered to the saints. All they care about is the subjective experience. That they have had a, uh, an experience and they, they feel a certain way. That they, they will give you maybe even a testimony that once my life was this way, now it's this way. I feel different, therefore I am. The problem with this kind of living of the Christian life is it's a living of the Christian life where when someone says, okay, friend, you've had this experience, but we need to test. In fact, John has said that we should try the spirits and we must test your experience by the objective realities of what God's word says. And they will say, well, I don't want to do that. I just want to live in the subjective way that I feel. And what ends up happening is the subjectivism becomes the authority in and of itself. 
The way I feel is ultimately what guides the church in all that we do. You find this in a lot of modernists in, in, in the pulpit today. Individuals who will proclaim this lofty gospel that God would, would never want us to feel anything but joy and euphoria. That the Christian life is one where God would not want us to experience hardship and dilemma. And, and, and all you need to do to be a Christian is to come in on Sunday morning and enjoy the light show and enjoy all of the smoke and all of the BS that's pumped out of the pulpit. And maybe make a profession of faith, but you really don't need to be concerned with doctrine. That's something for people in ivory tower theological circles. It's really not for the rest of us in Christianity. But the Bible tells us all throughout the New Testament that the real Christian life is one that that holds a tension between two realities. And one is the objective doctrinal reality of the Bible, and the other is that those Doctrinal realities have really been applied to our hearts through the work of the Spirit alone. So we don't want to fall into either one of these errors. Do you remember when the Pharisees uh, had concluded their interaction and there is this lawyer who approaches Jesus and he asks him about the law in Matthew chapter 22 The Bible records, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and all of the prophets. Do you not hear what Jesus had just said to this lawyer? who, if I were to venture to say, is probably one of the objectivists. He's one that has everything in his head, and he's testing, Jesus, give me good, solid truth. And Jesus says, you want good, solid truth? It's this, that every part of you should be laid on the altar for God. Both your heart, your mind, and your soul. All of you belongs to God in loving Him. You can't really love God if you're an individual who says, well, I will love him with my mind, but I'm going to keep my heart and my soul to myself. No, you have to love God, heart, mind, and soul. If you are going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, it takes all of who you are. It doesn't take much of a man, but it takes all that a man is to love and to follow God. So then we see the reality That what Jesus is saying in the first and great commandment is that both the objective and the subjective have to be part of how we live the Christian faith. That we should never buy into an error that says we can have either or. And and sadly, I think part of what is happening in the church today is that entire churches fall into one or the other. When in reality, we should pursue God with all of our being. I, I do believe that today the greatest ditch that the church has fallen off into is the pragmatic ditch. Most churches in America don't have time for the truth. They don't have time for the objective reality of the Word of God. Truth to so many people is boring. It's especially boring to people who have not been made new by the Spirit of God. That This book is dull anathema to those who don't have the the Spirit of God dwelling in them. It's difficult. It's it's weighty. 
But friends, all throughout the New Testament, we find the apostles and the prophets, uh, they're men of doctrine. They're objective. Uh, the, the, they're men who preach objective truth. They don't, Paul is not the kind of weak need modern preacher who suggests that maybe these things might be true. Paul is a lion defending the faith and letting the truth out. He's constantly putting those things forward. But Paul's also not an individual that is, is just dead in, in orthodoxy that's not connected with the working of the Spirit and the reality that God had to regenerate him prior to his coming to Christ. And we see that in the road uh, of Damascus. You see, we find all throughout the, the New Testament this reality of doctrine. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. What had they obeyed in that verse? They had obeyed a standard of teaching, an objective reality. They didn't just go about smiling and talking about God is love and we need to be loving and kumbaya. There was a standard set forth once for all delivered to the saints in the work of the apostles and prophets. And it was that subjective standard by which they lived their lives. It's the same subjective, objective rather, standard that the church needs today. Friends, do you know why the church is dying in our day? It's not because we don't serve enough popcorn. It's not because we don't have enough kids programs. It's not because we haven't put on the latest and greatest show. It's that we've shut the word of God off from the congregation. We've obscured it behind all of the little cute Garbage that we think will really bring people to God when in fact it is the Spirit of God alone that draws men and He does that work through the proclamation of His Word. So what of our verse here? John here does not just talk uh, about knowing something apart from a proclamation. Look at verse 16 in its context. So we have come to know. How do we know this? How is this a reality for the church? We have come to know. Look at the first words of verse 14. And, uh, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The proclamation of objective truth always comes before the knowing of that objective truth, the believing, the, the receiving, the holding on to. Objective, the objective always leads in the New Testament. It is the truth that ultimately sets us free. It's the objective standard of the Word of God put before the saints that causes us to reorient our lives and live differently, not according to the dictates of, uh, of the conscience of modern man, but according to what God has laid down from the foundation of the world for the saints. The reality is we have an objective standard by which we can judge our own lives and be conformed to the image of Christ. It is the objective truth of what God has done. Friends, the gospel is not a, a proclamation of religious things in hopes that you will respond the right way so that God can save you. The gospel is a proclamation that in spite of the fallenness of man, the wretchedness of man, God is bringing about his perfect plan of redemption. 
The objective truth of what God has done always precedes the faith of men. It always precedes belief. It's why I struggle with this kind of easy believism gospel that, that props up a faith that says we can believe on our own. Friends, you wouldn't know what to believe on your own. And one of the wonderful things is, you know, there's, there are things that God was doing for you redemptively prior to Genesis 1.1. Uh, there, there is the great reality of Pactus Salutum that, that, that in the order of decrees and that in, in, in God's redemptive plan before man was ever created, God in his Trinitarian being, in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit agreed to the plan of redemption, to what was going to ultimately come to pass and who they were going to redeem. And that objective reality is something that we should believe in. It really has turned into a theological controversy. And some people, well, that would mean that I read something this past week that made just fire. Sarah was driving down the road and I almost made her pull over because I was just so angry. This, This individual who claims to be a pastor basically said, well, if God has chosen those that he would save before the foundation of the world, then he's not any different than Satan because Satan wants everyone to go to hell and if God is really sovereign in the election of those who would come to believe then God wants only certain people to go to hell now that's a there's a long I probably shouldn't have even brought it up because there's a long way to explain all of that but suffice it to say that it's blasphemy to compare a holy triune God to Satan but fallen man without the grace of God will do that Friends, if it is a reality that God in his own being, apart from man, before the foundation of the world, agreed to redeem some, then anyone who speaks against that agreement is blaspheming the God of the heavens. And that's not a small thing. It's not a light thing. It's not something just for theological debate. I think I have somebody agreeing with me back there. You see, we live in a generation of love, love, love. You need to love like Jesus. It's what you'll hear all the time. And beloved, we should love as Jesus would have us to love. But there is something that comes before our subjective loving other people as Jesus loved. And you know what that is? Knowing the Jesus that we want to love like. It's actually the objective doctrinal realities. It is actually knowing Christ, not a version of who someone has told us of who Christ is, but who Jesus has actually revealed himself to be in the pages of Scripture. And John has been laying down that framework all throughout this letter. In verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And then he goes in verse 14 again to testify to the objective reality of that love. And why does he keep repeating all of this? Because in every age, there are those who will want to skip over the true and biblical Christ. And what they will end up wanting to do is to have a relationship with God the Father around the Son. That's what mysticism and so much charismaticism and so many of the cults are in our day. We want a relationship with 
the Father with God, we just don't want to have to go through the one mediator. We, we don't want to actually have to face who Christ really is. So there's all of this emotional, subjective, mystical type of expression of Christianity that as it turns out in the final analysis, isn't Christianity at all. Anything that bypasses Christ, beloved, is not Christian. And each one of us have an obligation to distrust any emotion that we might think that we have with respect to God unless it is firmly based in the reality of the second person of the Trinity. Those who have seen Jesus have seen the Father. And people who speak of of loving for God's sake and living in light of God but are not rooted and centered on Christ and Christ alone are not Christians. It is in Christ that we know true love. It is in Christ that love has been made known to us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God shows his love for us. How? In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We don't understand the love of God apart from looking to Christ. We must always seek to know God and to love God by knowing and loving Jesus. And beloved, mark this down. Knowing and loving Jesus does not really happen over the long haul of our lives without doctrine. There is no other way to come to know the love of God than through the Son of God. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy about these things in 1 Timothy chapter 2. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. So here's what we need to have distilled in our mind. We need both the objective truths of the faith delivered through the word of God, and we also need the subjective experience of verse 13 in the spirit having been given to us. Friends, I believe that it is so important that we confess the actual gospel as a church. I believe that it's important that we get the gospel right. I believe theology is important in that vein. I promise you that that God is not going to, to bow to a false gospel. He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever would turn from their sin and believe upon him would have everlasting life. And small variations distorting the gospel will not stand in the final analysis. We must know theologically the true gospel. But that gospel cannot be divorced from the fire of the work of the Spirit of God in the saints of God. It, it can't be merely an intellectual thing. We have to come to Christ and warm our hearts upon Him and know Him and proclaim His gospel in both the objective and in the subjective expression. There's a second component to this faith and experience. And that is between the knowledge and the faith components. The relationship between those two things. Our faith, our theology, is ultimately... Uh, distilled down into what the preeminent theologian called the, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. 
And that that ultimately doesn't happen without the Spirit's work. We don't know God and we don't know ourselves without the Spirit being at work. One of the things, beloved, that we can pray in our own generation is that people would come to know the true God, the God of the Bible, and that God through His Spirit would reveal to men who they really are outside of Christ. Because if men knew those two things, who God really is and who they really are, we would see a whole lot more repentance in our day. So one of the first things that we have to square with is our knowledge comes entirely from God. We would never know God if he had not revealed himself to us. And we see this all throughout the globe as missionaries come in and they present their missions field. What we will see time and time and time again are individuals in a particular area that have this religious impulse. And maybe they worship Buddha, maybe they worship a governmental structure, maybe, maybe they're involved in, um, in, in the Muslim faith. They will worship some conception of who they believe God to be, but they will not worship the one true triune God. Because they, man, apart from the revealing work of the Spirit of God in the pages of Scripture, man cannot conceive of who God is. God has has, has condescended to our low, finite state to reveal himself to us. And he does not do that except through the clear words of the apostle and the prophets. So we need to consider that alongside of our faith. Knowledge and our belief ultimately go hand in hand. There is, of course, a sense in which we must know in order to believe. We must know things in order to believe, in order to trust. The knowledge is the basis for the faith. So knowing God, knowing self is really at the root of what it is to be a follower of Christ. And there is, we've talked about this before, the notitia, the ascensus, the fiducia, that is, there is a basis of knowledge, facts that we have to know about Jesus, and then our hearts go yes and amen to those things, and then we place our trust, the fiducia, the, 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 the bearing of trust upon Christ. There, there must be a certain amount of knowledge that we have of Christ to place our faith in Christ. You have to know something before you can trust it. You have to know it, you have to agree with it, and you ultimately have to lean into or trust on Christ. And only this is what we need to get in our mind. When we hear those things, that the, the body of knowledge that we must have to be saved, and then the assent or the yes and amen to that truth, and then the trusting in that, Do you know that Christ is the only one who has perfectly placed his trust where it ought to be placed? So when we talk about believing, our belief when we proclaim it is something that ought to be, that that, that must be proclaimed first in a, well, it ought to be this kind of way. But immediately as fallen sinners, we have to acknowledge, but we can't even do that on our own. Our experience of faith is a bit different because we are so beset with sin from an experiential standpoint, that subjective analysis of our faith. We are always growing. We're always growing in knowledge. And we're always growing in our hearts saying, yes, that's true. And we're always growing in trusting God. So there is a sense in which 
uh, God gives us a knowledge of Christ in a saving fashion, almost as a seed of faith, and we trust in that. We trust in what God has revealed to us, and we are saved, and we are secure in Christ because God has done His work of, redeem, uh, of redemption in our hearts, and we believe who Christ is, that He is holy, that we are not, that He has atoned for sins, and He has pleased God. We have not, and we trust in Him. And, and in that way, we have to know that Christ before we trust in him but what's interesting is that after we come to know that Jesus we realize oh no there's a whole lot more that I need to know that I don't know so that I can agree with the living God so that I can actually trust him from an experiential standpoint we are always growing we are always reaching further into the faith we are always expanding and we're always kind of waking up with that oh my word he's so much bigger than I could ever comprehend the the first day that I believed him for salvation he was sufficient he was enough and he was the one authoring faith in my life but today I see him with greater clarity And I perceive that he's done so much more. And I've realized that I couldn't even believe that first bit of truth about him had he not revealed it to me and given me the faith. There's so much more to him than what I previously thought. Uh, The the English poet Robert Browning wrote, Ah, but a man should, man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what is heaven for? What he's saying there is that we should constantly be reaching higher for greater truth to believe about who Jesus is. And that is the life of the Christian. That, that, that we do know Jesus and that we have come to a saving knowledge of him and, and, and we can rest in that and know that we are truly saved. But then we pivot and immediately say, oh, God, help us in our unbelief. Uh, we need to be grown. We, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me to believe things that I've never even thought of before. That was the experience that I had when I went to Bible college and all of these pastor's kids were arguing about doctrine. And at that point in my life, I can tell you 100% for sure that I was in the subjective camp. I had just come to know Jesus. And what are you all arguing about? Boy, the things that, I, that, 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 that God has revealed to me since then about who he is and how he is much larger than I could ever comprehend and that he is the one who is accomplishing redemption from beginning to end. That when we stand at the throne of grace, no pastor will get a pat on the back for the people he brought to Christ. The spirit will be glorified for building the church in the spirit alone. And Christ will be exalted for the reality of his substitutionary sacrifice. And the Father will be exalted for the reality that he proclaimed all of these things by his will before the foundation of time. And you know what our flesh will do in that moment? We will bow down before him. What a wonderful joy it is to grow in knowing him. It's really what Paul talks about in his theology to the church at Philippi. When he writes in chapter 3, you'll remember these words. Indeed, I I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And I believe that that knowing Christ Jesus my Lord is that that first bit of knowledge that that Paul had on the road to Damascus, had his eyes open, and instead of persecuting the church, he realizes, I am undone. And this is the Christ who really is God, and he repents and believes. 
And he goes on. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You know part of what that rubbish is, is the things that he thought he knew. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And listen to these words, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection, resurrection of the dead. The, the gnosko is the first word that is used in that passage that I know Jesus, that I know him truly. I know he is the son of God. I know he is my savior. I know that he has paid the penalty of my sin. But the second use of that word is what, that I might know him. And if someone reads this in the original Greek, they might think, has he lost it? He says he knows him, but he wants to know him. Which one is it? And the answer is yes and amen. And so it is in our lives. We know him, but we want to know him. Every morning we pick up our Bible, there should be something fresh and new that is, oh, wow. Ultimately, I think... This is why we can see in verse 16, John puts knowledge before belief. Look here. So we have come to know and to believe. I've known things and I believe them, but boy, I believe them a whole lot more now that I know more about him. We've known this, but we, we, we need to know more. Friends, a Christian should never come with his Bible thinking that he has mastered it. That he, that he knows it. That he is the scholar. That he is the one who I know that in the, in the course of my 16 years of, of growing in my understanding of the Word of God and being serious about the Word of God, that Jay Clatworthy is nothing but a pup. That there is so much that God has revealed in his Word that I've yet to see. Really, I think that Paul aims at this second knowledge, this that I may know him in chapter 1, verse 9 of this same letter. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more for one another. He's stirring them up in the same direction that John is in this letter, that you would love one another in the body of Christ. But how is that love going to come to pass? He says right here, with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The full knowledge there that... that, that um, that Paul is speaking of in chapter 1 verse 9 is the epigenosis, the full-orbed understanding of Christ. What, what Paul is saying to the church is we can know Jesus in a saving way, but if you're really going to know one another, or if you're really going to love one another in the way that Christ wants you to love one another, you need a full-orbed vision of who Jesus is, and that comes through doctrine. And the Spirit working to reveal Christ to you in the pages of Scripture. Remember, John is writing in a difficult, fallen world. Verse 19, chapter 5, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. His encouragement here in verse 16 is, church, you need to go on growing in your knowledge of who the living God is. 
that you might love one another well. The only way that you can really be rooted in genuinely knowing that you are loved is by knowing the object and feeling that subjectively is by knowing the objective truths once for all delivered to the saints. You must go on to immerse yourself in the word of God in that way. Though the way that we have this joy is by realizing that God has loved us. And the further we go, the more we realize we're more sinful than we thought we were the day before. And Jesus is more loving than we ever perceived him to be. And so it's seemingly those two things become more contradictory, but they bring more glory to God at the same time. And what this means in our lives is this, beloved. If we're going to live in that same dark, fallen, sin-cursed world full of demonic devices, that we can face the days ahead not just on some superficial, subjective faith, but we can live in the days ahead on the objective reality that God has loved us from the foundation of the world and if hell were to rain down on us itself, knowing that God loves us is enough. This is what I find in my own heart and in our church far too often. Well, I would love that person if they would. The right motive for loving a brother or sister in Christ is never them in and of themselves. It is always the reality that they are beloved of Christ. It is always, even even in, in the sense of lost people, the reason we love lost people isn't because they're delightful in, in who they are, subjectively. It's because we realize that God created them and the image of God abides in them. And so we are called to love them for the potential of what God can do with them. We don't love because people are lovable. We love because we have been so loved in Christ. And regardless of what comes... Knowing then that we are loved, we can refrain with Paul in Romans chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the Ferrari, the good job, the children behaving the way that we want them to be. All of the church members doing what we want them to do. Is that what the promise of God is? No. The promise is knowing all of these things. That we will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He belongs. His love belongs to us. And his love belongs to us not because of who we are. But because of what God had decreed before the foundation of the world. And you know what that should cause us to do? Praise Him with all of our lives. There is this impulse in our day that if we preach a gospel that is purely of grace, then people will stop doing what they're supposed to do. I don't think people start doing what they're supposed to do until they know the grace of God. Because all of who we are and all of what we do ultimately is tinged with selfish, arrogant motives until we come face to face with the love of God in which we have believed and then we begin to interact with people outside of ourselves based not upon the subjective realities of this world but on the objective truths of how we have been loved in Christ. 
Now, ultimately, this is a, and I'm going to try and breeze through these, so buckle up. This is meant to be a test of our subjective faith. And so here I'm going to give you ten tests by which we can gauge if we know the love of God. And these are borrowed, but they're helpful. One, we know the love of God if we have lost the sense that God is against us. So the Christian circus that's going on in our day where people say, well, God is not a God of wrath and he would never be angry at you. And, and, and God just loves and, and there's, there, we really don't need to worry about the shedding of blood and all of those things. Do you know why that all exists? Because humans in their natural capacity want to ignore the reality that they deserve eternal punishment from God. And so what has demonically happened, part of what, what is, is the, the world and the power of the evil one, is that pastors will stand up in the pulpit and they will tell people, God just loves you. You don't have to repent. You don't have to change. You can go on living your homosexual, sexually promiscuous, fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is, lifestyle, and God just is fawning over. What is happening is the pastor is giving them what their hearts desire. And that is a covering for the reality that they're under the wrath of God. But it's a cheap substitute for the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the reality is that, that, that when we come to Christ and when we know Him truly. And, and we know Him in a saving way. We realize that because He has shed His blood on our account. We no longer stand condemned. And we no longer need to tremble. At the thought of God. He is no longer our taskmaster. He is now our father. Secondly. We lose our servile fear of God. We, we no longer look at, at God as this person that just has all of these rules. And we need, to, we need to live up to him so that God will love us. Friends, I have sat with believers throughout my ministry here. In tears. Who look to God. As though he would only love them if they got their act together. And that is nothing more than a statement of unbelief. Because the true believer knows we don't have our act together. But we have been covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, again, we don't have to fear God. Hebrews 12 tells us that we should approach God with reverence and a godly fear, a filial fear, looking to, to, to God as our Father. And it's actually what the rest of chapter 4 is going to major on, is that we've lost this fear of God in a, in a servile sense. Third, the sense that God is for us and that He truly loves us. You, you have this understanding that God genuinely, truly does. In a subjective way, you know that because the Spirit has revealed who Jesus is and He's revealed the, the wrath-bearing sacrifice that Christ is, that, that, that God is for us and that, that, that He truly loves us. We're no longer... In this state of fear, we no longer fear the wrath of God because we know that God has given the very best that He could ever give in the person of His Son. And fourth, we have this sense that our sins are forgiven. Now you want to talk about a, 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 a doctrinal reality that we're going to have to go on growing in, in light of throughout of our, all of our lives. It's this reality that our sins have been forgiven. Can anyone stand up today and tell me exclusively what that means from beginning to end? 
Can, can you defend why your sins would ever be forgiven? No. Uh, we're miserable sinners. You know, some people, well, I will forgive you as long as you never do it again. God forgives us knowing that we will do things again. Our sins have been taken away. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Our sins are as white as snow. Astounding to our minds, but it's a reality that we truly know as Christians. And if we do know that, if we do have an experiential subjective sense of that, we we can be sure that we know the love of God. Fifth, do you have a sense of thanksgiving and gratitude? Again, it's beyond comprehension that God would give his son the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. It's absolutely astounding that God would take people who hated him and who who pretended religiously to be good and he would pardon them and draw them near to himself. It's what happened uh, to Saul on the road to Damascus. In the moment you remember that he saw and understood who Christ was. Do you remember what he said in Acts chapter 9 verse 6? He says, Lord, what will you have me to do? What is that than a, a statement of gratitude? I mean, God had taken this proud, arrogant, religious punk, thrown him on the ground, revealed himself to him. And all Paul can do is say, all of my life now belongs to you. I'm so thankful for what you have done in stopping me on my, my mission of persecution and turning me into a, 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 having a mission of redemption. What will you have me to do? My whole life, I don't want to just come in and say I'm thankful. I want all of who I am to glorify you. I want all of who I am to express gratitude for the great gospel and the work that you have done in me. Sixth, you know that you know the love of God if you have an increased hatred of sin. And I'm not talking to the crusty back row Baptists that hate everyone else's sin. I'm talking about hatred of your own sin. As a husband, one of the realities that I lament over and wrestle with more than anything else is how my sin affects first God, but also the reality that I know that my sin affects my own family. And my sin affects believers in this church. And I hate my sin. That doesn't come without the love of God. Seventh, we have a desire to please God and to glorify Him in our living. It's what's so sad about cultural fundamentalism. Is cultural fundamentalism, you know, you should look a certain way. And you should wear certain clothes because God is only pleased if you come to church on Sunday morning in a certain, you know, brand of suit. And God is not going to love you if you chew tobacco. And there's a whole other list, too, that's added on to all of this. Do you know what that garbage is? It's bypassing Jesus. That's what it is. We don't live... In such a way that we make Jesus go, yay. He has brought us to new life. 
He took us from being dead in our trespasses and sins and sinning against everyone around us and and making a mockery of who he is as God. And he opened our eyes to the reality that he loved us when we were absolutely unlovable. And so that and that alone is what ultimately fuels our desire to bring glory to him. Because here's the thing too with all of these outward outmoded systems of cultural fundamentalism. Do you know what, who, who the audience of cultural fundamentalism is? It's not God. It's everyone else that sits in the pew. It's making sure that other people would think I'm a good Christian. I don't want other people to think I'm a good Christian. I want to live my life not before the face of men, but before the face of God seeking to bring Him glory. And I want Him to actually transform me. I know that I'm not good. But I know the one who is good and who can make me live in a way that would bring honor and glory to God. John wrote in John chapter 14, whoever has my, Jesus saying this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and, my, and, and manifest myself in him. We know the love of God when we we have this desire not to please the religious edicts of men, but when we want to live before our Father who is in heaven. Eight, we have a desire to know Him better and draw closer to Him. Sad thing about self-deceived Christians in our own church is they're people who will say, I've learned all that I need to learn about Jesus. I know everything that I ever want to know about him. Just having a little knowledge of Jesus is enough. I can promise you this, that if you have a Jesus, that knowing him just a little bit is enough, it's not Jesus. Because the second you come to know the real Jesus, you want to know more about him. And then then as you know more about him, you want to know even more. And there never comes a point in your life that you become that old crusty person who refuses or young crusty person. They're all ages. That doesn't want to know more about Jesus. the real reality of why they come to that point of saying, well, I don't need to study my Bible anymore and I don't need Bible studies anymore. The reason people come to that conclusion is because they've bypassed Jesus. They're not actually believing in the true Jesus. They're believing in an idol, a Jesus that they've manufactured in their own mind to serve their own purpose and complete their own plan of redemption. But the real Jesus is one that causes us to fall down and to seek to glorify him with all of our lives. And we want to know more of him. It's what the author of Psalm 42 speaks of. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That I would have this subjective experience of knowing him more every day. Nine, we know that our love, and and this is where if if you just heard that, you're probably thinking, oh, I don't want to know Jesus and love Jesus as much as I should want to know Jesus and love Jesus. Good news. Nine, we know that our love and our desire to to know and love him is far impoverished, that, that we don't desire him. If you know the love of God, you will know that you don't love him the way you should love him. You will know that your appetites for the things of God, because you are fallen, because you are enfleshed, are far more trivial than they ought to be. 
We see all throughout Christian history, people giving everything in their lives for the cause of Christ. And the modern Christian will look at martyrs and will look at people who gave all that they had for the cause of Christ. And they will say, that's a really big cost. But when we really know Jesus, we realize he is the pearl of great price and we could give everything. And it's still not enough. Our love is often cold. Ninth. We know we know the love of God when our greatest desire is to merely hear about Christ more and more. When our greatest joy is not who wins the Super Bowl. It's not who has the biggest toys. It's not who has the most intellect. We know we know the love of God when what satisfies our soul is hearing more of who Jesus really is and the benefits that he has given to us. We're, we're, we become people in knowing the love of God. We become people who refuse to be lulled into shallow Christianity by the foolish doctrines of moderns. Because we've tasted the real thing. We've known Jesus. He is the true husband. He is the true vine dresser. He is the one who cares for us genuinely. He has lavished his grace upon us. And cheap substitutes, beloved, will never do. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and that's no trivial thing. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And these are things that we never get over hearing. The reality that he would love us. The preeminent theologian said, Christ was given to us by God's generosity to be grasped and possessed by us in faith. By partaking of Him, we principally receive a double grace. Namely, that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we have in heaven, instead of a judge, a gracious Father. And secondly, that sanctified by Christ's Spirit, we have and may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. I began today, beloved, by reminding you that we have many blessings to extol in Christ. We have many things our brains cannot comprehend, but these are two that we can let root down in our soul. In Christ, we have a gracious Father, and now because of that reality, we have the ability to cultivate lives that would bring glory to Him. And all of that is rooted in the love that he has shown to each one of us. Would you pray with me? Father, we are far too easily pleased. We give in to the temptation to be lulled into trivial gospels. To squander substantive doctrines. To take 
lightly the study of your word, which is the only real place in looking into your word that we can behold the glory of who you are this side of heaven. Father, we take too lightly the gift of your spirit. If redemption were dependent upon us, we would all be damned. But we come into this place today, and hopefully every day that you give us, giving you glory, knowing that it is you who have both authored and are completing the work of redemption in us. We are not loved because we're lovable. We're loved because you have chosen to do so. Father, might we glorify your name and take your gospel to the ends of the earth 